So we're in this series called Back to the Garden where we're um, just kind of spending the next couple of weeks discussing sin, which I know is everybody's like, man, I can't wait to get up at church and talk about sin in my life. Um, but one of the things that's beautiful about it is, uh, is going through Genesis uh, kind of 2 and 3, and as we're doing so, um, every week we have someone who, as we are, God's creation is creating something to tell the story of God as they kind of see it through their lens and through their artistic mode. And so Mike did that one. It's beautiful. Everybody give it up for Mike. And it's cool, too, because, like, because Mike's thing is so different than Caitlin's thing, but I both did it. I'm like, dude, that's dope. Like, I see those, and I am, I am, I'm pretty confident in my, like, ability to do stuff, okay? I am very confident that in the rest of my adult life, if I spend every minute trying to be, like, good at drawing, no chance, right? Just, I don't have that bone in my body. And so I just love to see when, uh, when people do that. So this series, though, is, it's, it's aimed at kind of this central question that I think we wrestle with as, as people who, who long for and want to follow Jesus. And the, the thing is simple. It's that we know that Jesus is the means by salvation, right? We know that as it relates to sin, um, sin causes and creates a wedge or a gap between us and God, and, and, uh, one that we can't overcome, one that we can't repair. It's an irreparable damage that's done between us and God when we choose to sin, and everybody does it, right? This is not saying, like, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. This is like the human condition is this condition, and what we believe as Christians is that the way towards Jesus, the way towards heaven, if you will, um, is not by me being a good person, not by me being a better person, not by me sinning less. It's the realization that when Jesus died on the cross, um, fundamentally and, function, and functionally what happened was because of the separation between me and God that sin had caused, God decided to bridge that gap. Consequently, as a Christian now, I don't try to live for God, try to be obedient to God, try to avoid sin so that God will be happy with me. It's actually the opposite. God is happy with me, so I try to live for him. I try to glorify him. I try to honor him. My kids don't act the way they do. Well, sometimes they act the way they do, which is like, this is so deeply against your father's will right now. Put on your pajamas. It's time to go to bed, right? But there are like, you know, lots of times where I hope that they don't fear that if they discontinue doing what I say, that they will no longer be a part of our family. They will always be a part of my family. But I hope that they want to do what I say because they want to honor me and they trust me. And so we don't live for God just so that God will be happy with us or so that God will be happy with us. God is happy with us because of what Jesus has done. Consequently, we live to honor and to please God because it's this crazy idea. We actually trust him and think what's best. And so sin, not in the sense of salvation justification, but sin in the sense of post-salvation justification, what happens towards sanctification? Because though we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, and we trust God, we all find ourselves still in habitual patterns, cyclical patterns of sin. And so the, the thought behind this is if sin is kind of an iceberg, what we normally look at in church world is here's just the top of the iceberg. Here's what's happening on the surface level. And what happens at the surface level is you shouldn't sin. Um, try to sin less, so Jesus help me, Right? I mean, kind of the universal, what we've taught in church world is it's pretty simple. Um, don't sin. You're going to sin. So Jesus, help me to sin less. And this series really just pauses and says, let's take a look at what's happening underneath. What's the why behind it? If we know we shouldn't, and we know we don't want to, 
Or at least we know we shouldn't want to. Why is it that we continue to engage in the things that we engage in, even though we know it's not what's good for us or what's best for us? And the reason is, is because there are things that happen below the surface that need examination. Because sin in and of itself is not an ends. It is a means to an ends. It accomplishes a greater purpose. And so we're looking and saying, what is that greater purpose? Now, this is beautiful art. But for everybody who's not in the um, art world, we're going to talk for a second because, um, so again, I look at that and I'm like, I could never draw in my life. But the on-ramp to today's conversation is, is through a little thing I like to call in the business world a cost-benefit analysis. Now, if you've been here for a while, you know this. Uh, and if you haven't, if you're brand new, then this is maybe new information for you. So I pastor the church um, kind of on the side. So the church is my primary like, responsibility. Um, my normal day-to-day is I, I run a meat company. Um, we smoke, sell smoked pork sausage. It's, it's, I'm telling you, it's God's gift to planet Earth. Talk about a cost-benefit. I mean, good grief, you know. Uh, in fact, we just, I think we just eclipsed our 650th store that we're in. Thanks, thanks. Publix, Walmart, Winn-Dixie. Anyways, commercial over for now. Um, but in any type of a um, business, there's, there's, there's this cost-benefit analysis. This cost-benefit, which basically means that, that there is a cost and does the value proposition of this particular product exceed the cost that it requires. Here's just a working definition. So um, anybody who's non-business major, you can kind of just like track along with this. That the cost-benefit analysis is a process that assesses the relation between the cost of an undertaking and the value of the resulting benefits. Now, this is true if, if you purchase a product or you purchase, purchase a service. For instance, Um, as a product that you purchase, you're wondering, is this product deliver the value? Is it worth the cost? If you're going to something like therapy, the question is, is does it deliver the value, though it's not necessarily a physical product, it is a product that I hope drives value in my life and it will have a cost. Sometimes the cost is time. Sometimes the cost is money. Sometimes the cost is the opportunity of what you would have done with that time and that money instead of it. But there is a cost and a value associated to virtually every decision you will ever make. Now, what's interesting about this, about this cost-benefit analysis, is that we make them all the time. And there are a number of tiers of things that we take into account. In other words, there's three basic buckets. If you're a marketer, if you're a marketing major in here, you probably know this, but if you're not, then let me just tell you how everybody um, basically manipulates you in the, in the working world. Here's how it works, okay? <clears throat> there are three types of needs. There is a, a physical need. It works to your physical appetite. There's an emotional need. It works towards your emotional appetite. And there is a sense of, like, my kingdom, my pride, a, a need of self, right? So let me tell you or show you a couple of things in our family that we have decided kind of universally. No one ever said this. We just all agree that these are wonderful value propositions. I brought my backpack. By the way, I don't know when you stop bringing a backpack to stuff. Some of you are like a briefcase. I'm like, dude, I'm, stop. I'm not wasn't raised in the 60s, okay? And if you are, I love your leather thing, you know? Chick-fil-A, am I right? You don't, you, again, you can clap for that. Beautiful value proposition that's, that's not right here. Some of you are thinking, man, you couldn't get like real Chick-fil-A? Bro, closed on Sundays. Come on, repent. We universally agree in our family that there is so much value in this, right? Number one. It's relatively inexpensive, so the cost is low. And I say relatively because for you, you're like in college, you're like, bro, those chicken sandwiches are steep. You haven't seen my daycare bill. That's all I'm going to say, okay? <clears throat> Number one is, is, is it doesn't cost a ton. Number two is like it tastes great, right? I mean, it's just like 
I don't know how they make chicken that doesn't get dry, but if my life had the consistency of the moisture of, of, of Chick-fil-A chicken, like, we would be at a, I don't know what it would be, but I feel like it would be different, you know? On top of that, it's like real chicken. That's a big deal in today's food industry. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, right? Like, you eat it, and you're like, I don't think I'm going to get cancer because I ate this, right? Like, I, it's actually definable pieces of meat, right? And so we've decided that this is a very good, the cost is low, the value is high. I just want to show you one more that is, um, is awesome in our family. Uh, it's registered sausage. Am I right? Y'all thought I was going to leave that out. I'm not going to talk about that much because that seems weirdly self-serving. Although, here we are. Anyway, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Great marketers get this. We're going to offer, we're going to offer, this is some type of a physical need, the greatest products, some type of a physical need, and there's some type of an emotional pull, and on top of that, it tells you, kind of informs you who you are in yourself. Look at, look at Coke. I have a friend that works for Coke. He's high up, and I think he's, he's, he's awesome. And I tell him all the time, hey, when you want to go from selling sugar water to, you know, smoked pork, which I think is defensively better, right, <clears throat> just call me up. But you think about it. You watch a Coke commercial, and here's what they're selling. You don't see a bunch of people sitting on a couch drinking Coke at 2 a.m. as they watch Netflix, unable to go to sleep because they have insomnia because they've drank Coke so much, right? We see people, like, dancing, like, you know? And they're just, like, like, like having fun, and we are the world, you know? <laughs> and it's like, how is flavored sugar water driving this much excitement? Oh, caffeine. That's what it is, right? But you think about that. What are they selling? They're selling fun. They're selling joy. They're selling excitement. They're selling a lack of stress, a lack of anxiety, a carefree life. And this is who you could and should be. And what's interesting is what great marketers know. Not what good. What great marketers know is this. The best way that we can position our product is to make you the hero of the story. What companies have a tendency to do is to say, so I'm the hero of the story. Our company is the hero of the story. No, no, no. The best thing that we can do is to make you the hero of the story. And great marketing falls into those three categories. Great physical value, great emotional pull, and it props you to be the hero of the story. Now, what I love about business is this is literally in Genesis 3 this framework. And so I just want us to pause and take a look at this framework as it relates to the temptation that happens in the garden. And I think it will posture us in a way at the end of this to actually just view the true cost benefit of the sin that we engage in. Because I think it's nuanced and it's oftentimes undetected. Genesis chapter 3 we have Genesis 1 and, uh, and 2, and if you're not familiar with what happens in 2, there's this garden, there's this two trees that are in kind of the central to the garden, and in these two trees, there's one that's the tree of life and one that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God said, look, you can eat freely from any tree, just don't eat from this one particular tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So they said, okay. Well, actually, he said that to Adam, which is going to be an important detail. Verse 1, now the serpent, new character, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now hold on to that idea of crafty for a second, because that's going to be an important thing as he says this next statement. 
He, being the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He said, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, there's two options on how to interpret this. Either the serpent is dumb because he just wildly misquoted God. Or he's actually trying to bait her into a conversation because the longer she stays in the conversation, oftentimes the more potential and propensity you have to fall. So he says, hey, let me ask you a question. Did God actually say that? Did God actually say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Well, the answer is clearly no. That's not what God said. What God said is you may eat freely from any tree. But it begins this understanding and this awareness of of if I do what God says, what God says is actually restrictive to me, not life-giving to me. So it kind of introduces the uh, uh, question, inception style, this sense of restraint in following God. It says, did God actually say that you can't eat from any tree? Well, Eve's response is this. She said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall neither eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, again, two ways to interpret what just happened here, because what actually God said is, You shall not eat. He didn't say anything about touching it. So in a charitable frame, people will look at this, scholars will look at this and say, what what in a positive way has happened has they have decided that obedience to God is going to have guardrails around it. And so not only are we not going to eat of it, but we know if we touch it, we're going to be tempted to eat of it, and so we're not even going to touch it. Now that's a good way to think about it. That's a positive way to think about it. I tend to be a little bit more cynical and skeptical, and I'm married, so I kind of know how this works, which is I think God told this to Adam, and guys, we're just not great communicators all the time, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot he said only don't eat it. But I put in don't touch it because that felt good to me too, you know? And so one is that Adam failed to communicate. The other one is they were just being wise or smart about it. But either way, has a slight misstep in how she views and perceives what God is to do. Coincidentally, in a way, that's more restrictive. So he looks and says, or she looks and says, this is what God has said. But the serpent doesn't even really argue that. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, come on. If you eat of this, there's no way that you actually die. And maybe there's, maybe there's more to it on behalf of the motive of God, verse 5. For God knows, and this, this is why God told you that, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, man, your eyes are going to be opened, you're going to be like God, and you're going to know good from evil. Now, what I think is interesting about this, and just to, to, to parse out the basic dynamics of what was just said, This is going to cost you less and promise you more. In other words, this is the basic equation of marketing, which at the time was the basic equation of what the serpent was using, which is let me minimize the cost 
and let me overpromise the value of what's going to be delivered. Now, here's the problem. That's not a good model for sustainable business because eventually your customers are going to realize this actually costs a ton and it doesn't really give me very much. But what's interesting is internally in the dynamic of our soul, we don't get that same equation. And so what we hear kind of happening is that, man, this, this sin is not going to cost me very much, but it's going to deliver a ton of value to my life. In fact, let's just be honest. Most times it's not even this sin is going to cost me that much. It's this sin is not going to cost me anything because no one's going to know about it. The, the places and spaces where Satan has the most hold in our lives are the areas that we have carved out in our lives that we know that no one will know, or at least we think no one will know, if anyone were to ever find out. And this is why it's difficult. This is why it's tough. Because there seems like so much upside, and we convince ourselves of the minimization of the downside, of the value proposition that happens. And here's what we know to be true. And in fact, the longer you've been alive, the more you know this is true, is that the more that you have done that, eventually over time, it just eats at you. It erodes kind of who you are on the inside. And over time, over time, what was promised as it will cost you very little and add very much, it actually ends the opposite. It will cost you very much and it actually adds nothing. Here's, here, here's, here's how they continue this narrative, which I think is helpful for the next step. So when the woman kind of pauses and says, okay, so here was her internal justification. You can tell me if this sounds familiar or not. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, appetite, that it was a delight to the eye, the emotion, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise self, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. People try to absolve Adam of the guilt of this. I think it's, it's, it's comical because it's like at least she had the decency to be like, no, nah, we probably ought not do that. He's like, yeah, no, I'm hungry. That sounds good. It says that she looked and she saw that the fruit was, was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and it was able to make one wise. Here's the parallels between this. Almost any time you see in the Bible, sin talked about at a macro level, it is these three categories. These three categories. You look at what Jesus was tempted with. You know, you go into the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, and Jesus was tempted in the desert. He fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. He didn't eat anything. And so the devil, Satan, comes to him. The enemy comes to him and says, here's a stone. If you are God, turn it into bread and eat, appealing to the physical appetite. Next thing, okay, if you are God here, I want to put you over. I want you to see all of these places, all of these spaces, all of these kingdoms. I have the authority. I will put you over all of them, and they will all bow down to you. It's this sense of emotional, I feel worth, I feel value. And the last one, he says, is this is the, this is the pull towards, I want you to, if you are God, jump off this cliff, which we would just say is not really tempting, you know? It's like, hey, Ben, you're scared of heights. Jump out of the airplane. Which again, I'm not scared of heights, I'm scared of the fall from the height, you know? Like, I'm cool being up high as long as I know that we're, there's no sense that we're going to jump off this thing. But it's like, Ben, hey, you want to be tempted? Jump out of an airplane? I'm like, that, there's, there's no part of me that's like, man, I can't wait to have my throat and my, my stomach in my throat. You know? I just love the thrill. Like, no. You don't think life is stressful enough, huh? All right. 
What's interesting in this, it says there's these three distinct categories. And the third category that Jesus attempted with, it's a, it attempts in the sense of pride. Okay, if you are that, then you will do this. And every time Jesus combats it with the word of God, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says this incredible thing. It says basically all of this world, all of the problems, all of the temptation of the world can be summed up in these three things. And how it, how it says it tracks with Jesus' experience, tracks with the garden experience. It says lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. There's a physical appetite, an emotional appetite, and a self-appetite that grabs and wraps around all of our sinful patterns and behaviors. Here's why I say that. Every one of us, I think, has a sin that we're currently dealing with to some level. Whether our dealing with it right now is we're living in some version of victory over it, or dealing with it right now is we feel like we will never get rid of it. And oftentimes we just say, okay, say, okay, so stop. Stop, just stop doing it. But here's the question that I want to pose. It's not should you stop. It's in what areas is that sin creating a fulfillment physically, emotionally, and existentially? Because if we just say to stop, think about this, it creates a void in what we were doing, so we long for something. And if we don't see what that thing, that sin, is creating or doing, what, what purpose it's serving, then it's incredibly difficult to stop because we're just going to put something else in its place, right? This is why I said last week, and this is why I beat to death as much as I can, that sin is not an end. Sin is a means to an end. And we rarely stop and say, what's the end that this mean is serving? Man, so when I go online and I view pornography, what that actually does is there's a physical component to it, but beyond that, there's this sense of it's escapism. It helps me to escape the reality. It creates this sense of, of a quick, like almost like adrenaline, like euphoric sense, right, that happens. And in the middle of all that kind of stuff, I feel better about me when I'm engaging with that. And so we just say stop, but we need to ask the question, what is this an end to? Because what we all know to be true is if we don't look at the ends, we're just going to replace it with something just like it. And that's not the only one. And honestly, there, there's a part of me that doesn't even like to give examples of this stuff because like, it's like you know, the classic, you know, so don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, unless you step on a Lego and late at night, you know, and it really hurts. But everybody's got this. Like, I don't have to tell you what yours is. Like, as soon as I say, what is your place, what is your area, almost all of us just intuitively know what it is. And so if we're looking at the thing that it actually serves, the, the ends that it's a mean to, the categories of physical appetite, emotional appetite, and the existential self-appetite, here's the question that I want to drive into us this morning. It's simple. What is the actual cost? What is the true cost of this? Here's what I found to be true of me. Every time I find myself engaging in a habitual pattern of sin, I have minimized the cost 
maximized the benefit. But oftentimes, I don't stop and say, okay, but what is the actual cost of this? And isn't this true? For most of us, for most of us, the cost of our sin, the cost of our decision to not be obedient to God is not only not honoring to God, it's actually costly to ourselves and to other people. I would say this, for most of us, the most difficult thing that we've been through in life, besides just random loss, is the consequence of someone else's sinful decision and how that affected us. Because no one ever told dad, hey, dad, I want you to actually think about what that costs. No one ever said, mom, I want you to think about how that actually costs. No one ever said to their kid, kid, I know you're engaging in this and you think it's just you, but this is what this actually costs and I care so much about you, I don't want to see you perpetuate that in your future. So where do you think this is going to lead you? We rarely stop and just say, man, what does it ask? Let me just ask, let me ask. You know what your place is. You know what your thing is. You know what your area is. The fact that I know that, that we all know is because of the fact that none of us wants to talk about this because we all have an area. If we didn't have an area, we would walk in and be like, yeah, y'all need to stop. Quit being weird, you know? Let me just ask you, honestly, it, it, you don't deserve to do this to me. You deserve to do this to you. Because if you're risking a cost, you need to at least be honest about what the cost is. You wouldn't buy a house that says it's only 50 grand, but it turns out you actually go and it's, not only, it's 500 grand that you got to pay. What's the actual cost that's there? And here's kind of the problem with sin. And here's why it's deceptive. I want you to read again this, this last verse right here. It says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. You know what the biggest problem with sin is? Every single one of those was true. It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye, and it did make her wise. You think about that. So this is why, this is why the serpent was more crafty, because the serpent never said anything that was really wrong except for the very first thing that introduced the conversation. At least in her justification, how she took it, how she interpreted it, how she thought through it. I mean, yeah, I guess she, he did say, you know, that surely God, you know, surely you won't die. But think about this. The best deception, the best lies have enough truth in them to make you believe them, but have enough lie in them to lead you to the wrong decision. Isn't that true? This is why we obsess over stuff like social media who says you need to look this way, be this way, do this way because we think that we need to look a certain way, be a certain way, have a certain type of followership, have a certain type of aesthetic to us in order to be socially acceptable to other people. And so what we do is we go out of our way because do appearances matter? Yeah, I guess to some degree they do. But at the same time, like the reality is, is we will go through all kinds of destructive behavior to put ourselves in that position. Now, is it true? Is it helpful? Maybe. But the point of this whole thing is simply to say this, is that for each and every one of us, that truth can oftentimes lead us to the wrong decision. You know what people are trying to post in social media, by the way? What's pleasing to the eye was pleasing to the flesh and the pride of life. It's everywhere. 
And so I am going to pretend to be someone I'm not. I'm going to project a sense of who I'm not. And I don't, by the way, just mean people who like go on and post thirsty pictures, because that's true too, right? But come on, Christians, you're like, you're saved, saved, and you get this, right? Okay, captain of the, I'm posting in the middle of a meadow with my moleskin, you know, uh, journal and my, my, my cup of coffee that seems to be the right temperature almost all the time, right? And it just happens to be that no one's perspiring, and I'm just like frolicking, you know? And I, my God, he taught me this, right? Is it good that God Touches, of course, of course. But come on, why, why, why? Not that you, not that you can't post about God. That's not the point. The point is simply to say this. The point is to say that for all of us, for all of us, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life costs us something. And the primary way the enemy tries to use that and is in such a way that it maximizes the value and minimizes the cost. And to be very clear, I so deeply want to end this sermon on a positive note. I so deeply want to go into the, but Jesus is better. But obedience is better. But God is better. That the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Do I believe that's true? Of course I do. Tim Keller has this quote. It's this beautiful quote. He talks about it in terms of evangelism. But he says this, before we answer people's questions, we have to first question their answers. In other words, before I can say, here's why Jesus is better, it has to be first met with a dissatisfaction of the current status quo. To say, okay, so now put Jesus in that place is only going to work so far as we have a dissatisfaction. Pastor Craig Groeschel said this, you'll never change what you're willing to tolerate. You'll never change what you're willing to tolerate. I just want us to take an honest look at it and say, okay, so what are we tolerating? What's the actual cost of the toleration of the sin that we have? I mean, think about this, think about this. When we go to a restaurant, call it Chick-fil-A, Let's change that. Let's call it Ricardo's, one of my favorites in town. And if you have a restaurant, I would love to know what your restaurant is so I can promote your restaurant from on stage. And we'll just have lots of people go to your restaurant. But for just for now, right, Ricardo's, one of my faves. I love Italian food. It's awesome. Decent price. Good food. Really good people. He's calling. He's like, food's ready. <laughs> just kidding. And I want you to think about this. When we go to a restaurant and we realize the futility of the value proposition that they originally created. In other words, you go to the, the restaurant, the food's terrible, the, the service is terrible, the ambiance and the environment are awful and atrocious. You can't Instagram any of there because there's not even good lighting, right? <clears throat> and it costs a lot of money. Like when that happens, you know what we do? We don't say, you know what? I can't wait to go back. We say, hold on, let me hop on my Yelp review, you know? I don't know if you guys still do Yelp. I have never been a Yelper. You know, like, here's my Google review. Oh, Facebook, I'm about to unload on these people. You know, like, like no, no, let me just pause and say this. Can you imagine? Just, just, just think about it. I don't, even, I don't even know what all would be different. I just think it would be massively different. Can you imagine what would be different if the dissatisfaction we realized when we realized how futile the cost-benefit of a restaurant is, can you imagine how our lives would be different if we had that same level of dissatisfaction that has a far less value add than a bad restaurant experience? If we, like, we don't ever think, I mean, I can't wait to go back to that terrible place again. 
but we return to the same sin over and over and over again. As Christians, as people who know that we are not saved because of our good behavior, but we choose to live for God because we trust God. Here's all I'm saying. We will continue to choose sin. We will continue to choose sin. So long as we view not sinning as being not happy. We will continue, let me say that a different way in the positive context. We will continue to choose sin so long as we feel like it makes us more happy. So what's the cost? What's the cost to your family? What's the cost to your relationships? What's the cost to your occupation? What's the cost to your future hopes and dreams? What's the cost of it? And as an adult, you have full agency to continue to choose that way. It is not my job to make you choose a different way. All I want to say is if we are choosing, let's at least be honest about the cost that we're taking. Next week, we're going to talk about what do we do when we've chosen wrong. But here's my hope. That we will simply ask this question. What's the true cost? And as we examine that, we will become incredibly dissatisfied with the choices that we're making. And we won't view ourselves as bad people because we're always sinful people. But we'll see the futility and the choices and the sinful decisions we're making. So what's the cost? And I'm hoping and praying that God uses this thought, this question, and drives it deep into our heart and our lives and create a holy dissatisfaction with the sin that we wrap ourselves in. And the very last thing is if you're in here and you're struggling with faith, Christianity, Jesus, God, Bible, I don't know your story. But what I do know is probably somewhere along the lines of your story. You encountered a Christian who said that they believed one thing, who said that they trusted God with everything. And you looked at the reality of your life, and it looked like they trusted God with nothing. I don't know that this would change the way you believe. But I am convinced that it would convince you that we believe what we believe. And I'm praying that God turns us into a church that just doesn't just project holiness, but actually pursues it through an intentional examination of the sin and weight which so easily entangles us, that we would be a church who runs passionately and deeply after Jesus because he is so much better, so much more worth it. But you already know that. What we need to do is be discontent with the way things are. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would help each and every one of us. God, not even to have this sense of like judgment over ourselves, because we know that we are ultimately judged and we are found as sinners. We know that because of judgment and because of your salvation, Jesus, that you offered, that we are found to be saved, we are found to have relationship with you, that we are found to have reconciliation with you. That we don't do this. We don't talk about this to make you happy with us. 
Because God, if we could lose our salvation, we would. Because we all choose sin. But God, I pray that this would drive a sense of satisfaction so deeply in you and a dissatisfaction with anything other than you. That if we choose wrong, we choose it full well as adults of the consequences and we say that risk is worth that cost. I don't think that's a conclusion many of us would come to. But at least we would be honest with ourselves. I pray that there would be a sense of holiness. I pray that heartache would be avoided. I pray that families would be restored. I pray that potential rifts wouldn't happen. I pray that our children would live in such a way where they don't have to continually face the consequences of their parents' decisions. And parents like us who have made decisions, that they would be a group of people who acknowledge the decisions and say, but we still choose Jesus. God, I just pray that we would be a people who are just honest with ourselves, brutally honest with ourselves, intellectually honest with ourselves. To simply ask, what's the true cost? What's the true cost? And that will drive a dissatisfaction so deep. We will find ourselves so unfulfilled that maybe for the first time, We don't just get rid of the sin in our life because somebody told us to stop. But we'll be intolerant of the sin that we have because we are so deeply dissatisfied with it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.